This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. The topic for today is hypertension and the new hypertension treatment guidelines. Hypertension is extremely common in our society, affecting nearly one in every three individuals in the United States. And the treatment of hypertension is the most common reason for office visits of non-pregnant adults to healthcare providers and the most common reason for use of prescription medications. Our guest today is Dr. Gary Schwartz, a consultant in the Division of Nephrology and Hypertension at the Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. And we'll be discussing the evaluation and management of hypertension. Welcome, Gary. Glad to be here. Uh, Gary, I came across a somewhat alarming statistic, uh, despite the fact that we've got a wide variety of excellent hypertensive medications available. It's estimated that up to half of the patients with hypertension are not adequately controlled. Is it known why that's true? That's a very important and very good question to start this discussion. You know, over the last 30 to 40 years, um, we have seen a steady improvement in the awareness and treatment of hypertension in the United States, but still, uh, currently, uh, one in five people with hypertension are walking around unaware that they have it, and uh, one in four uh, patients who are aware they have hypertension are currently not being treated. So obviously, we still have improvement to make there. Obviously, surveys have shown that um, the uh, lack of control rate is not uniform across the population. Uh, it's higher in minority subgroups in our population. There's a lot of reasons for that. Some of that is due to the lack of access to health care in the minority population. We do know that uh, patients who have access to care, who see the same provider when they uh, go to seek care from visit to visit, and to have their blood pressures actually measured uh, relatively routinely um, at the practice setting where they're getting their care, uh, who have hypertension, um, have a higher control rate. Uh, now, there are other issues amongst the elderly as an important subgroup where hypertension is very common. We know that factors such as uh, multiple comorbidities, the number of medications that that patient is taking, all uh, correlate with poor control rates of hypertension. I suspect that the care provider is deciding that maybe enough is enough and they've given their patient enough medications and they're going to live with the blood pressure as it stands. There have been a number of large practice groups in the country who have undertaken quality initiative uh, projects uh, to improve control rates of hypertension in their patient populations, and they've been very, very successful. The key elements of those quality improvement projects have been uh, using or leveraging the electronic health records to create registries of the patients with hypertension for the practitioner, uh, employing uh, treatment algorithms uh, to guide adjustment in therapy and use of medications. These treatment uh, algorithms have uh, emphasized the use of once daily medications, generic medications, combination tablets all designed to create a simplified program for the patient. They employ regular and timely follow-up, uh, not only using the traditional office visit, but uh, employing telehealth and other methodologies to make it easy and convenient. And then lastly, providing the healthcare provider with a scorecard 
periodically, how they're doing. Uh, and those practices that have engaged in these types of endeavors to control rates for hypertension have increased from 50 to 55 percent, which is kind of typical now, to the 80 to 85 percent range, a dramatic improvement. I suspect that hypertension is like other asymptomatic conditions like osteoporosis, hyperlipidemia, where compliance rate is relatively low since there's really no symptoms for it. And I know I've found that if I can get my patients involved in actually monitoring their blood pressure, their compliance seems to be better. I don't know if that's true. I think that's a very, very good point. Uh, we'll probably talk a little bit more later about self-monitoring of blood pressure, but there's no question that studies have shown that uh, patients who monitor their own blood pressure tend to be much more adherent to therapy, and their control rates are much higher than patients who do not monitor their own blood pressure. That's a strength of uh, self-monitoring. Well, let's talk about uh, the diagnosis of hypertension. How many blood pressure readings do we really need in order to establish a diagnosis of hypertension in one of our patients? That's another very good question. Traditionally, as you know, we've relied on measures of blood pressure made in the healthcare provider's office as the gold standard uh, for making the diagnosis of hypertension uh, and for uh, adjusting therapy to achieve the blood pressure goal. It has been recognized uh, with a lot of scientific support that um, the office blood pressure has very limited value uh, in terms of uh, establishing a diagnosis of hypertension or predicting outcomes from hypertension, and that this is much better served by measurements of blood pressure made outside of the office. Um, so uh, the narrow answer to your question is that currently the recommendation is that properly measured um, office blood pressure includes at least two measurements made at an office visit and averaged and that the uh, diagnosis of hypertension can be suspected if it is consistently elevated on at least two office visits over a four to six week period, where again, two readings of blood pressure are made at each of those office visits. Now the new guidelines would recommend that in that patient, unless the blood pressure is severely elevated and have obvious target organ injury, where the diagnosis is quite obvious, but in the vast majority of patients who are asymptomatic, and who have mild uh, to moderate elevations, that the diagnosis actually be confirmed with out-of-office blood pressure measurements. The gold standard for that is the 24 or 48-hour um, ambulatory blood pressure recording, uh, but that's not widely available, um, and it's not covered by third-party payers. So a good surrogate for that is having patients acquire a blood pressure measuring device have it validated by the healthcare provider, have the patient taught how to measure their blood pressure, and to have them measure their blood pressure at home and bring those readings to the practitioner, incorporating those in to confirm the diagnosis of hypertension and to use those kinds of readings also uh, to adjust therapy to bring blood pressure to goal. We've seen patients commonly who have uh, high blood pressure in our office yet they bring in readings that look quite good when they've checked them in their home or elsewhere. Uh, so how do, we, uh, how do we assess patients who we think might have a white coat hypertension? Do, do we accept the office readings or do we accept their home readings? Yeah, so another very good question. I think 
most practitioners would gravitate toward the office reading of blood pressure as being quite important in their decision making, where the uh, scientific literature would suggest that's the poorest predictor of outcome amongst the various ways we measure blood pressure. So I, I'd like to make that very clear that properly measured uh, out-of-office measures by the patient themselves or readings made by these ambulatory devices are much more powerful predictors of adverse outcome than the readings that are made in the physician's office. One of the problems, or one of the reasons for that, I should say, is that we don't measure blood pressure very well in the office setting. In a typical busy clinical practice, we cut corners, and that leads to a lot of noise or inaccuracy in the blood pressure readings. And we can talk about that maybe in more detail later. But suffice it to say that if you've taught your patient how to measure their blood pressure properly and they're using a device that's accurate, those readings are much more important than the reading you get in your office. Uh, one important fact is that they'll take their blood pressure a lot more times than you're going to take it in the office. We know blood pressure is not a static measure. It's dynamic. It varies by time of day, by week, where it's measured, when it's measured, how it's measured, etc. And so the more readings we get, the more likely we are to identify where the patient's blood pressure actually is. And we can do that much easier with self-monitoring than by having the patient come in our office and get one or two readings here and there. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the technique of checking one's blood pressure. Uh, I was in the dentist, one of my most favorite activities, uh, not that long ago, and I had my blood pressure checked by the uh, dental technician. Uh, cuff was put on actually on my wrist, and I had to support my arm myself, and I realized the technique she was using was not the best. I, I was reluctant to criticize her because she was about to stick sharp objects in my mouth, <laughs> But let's talk a little bit about the technique about how to check a blood pressure. Yeah. So <clears throat> the new ACC AHA guidelines uh, put a special emphasis on the proper method of blood pressure measurement. And uh, we are asked to follow the American Heart Association guidelines, which really have been around for quite some time. And this is the rub, because to follow these guidelines properly, uh, it takes time to measure the blood pressure in many practices uh, just don't allow the time that's necessary to do it properly. So we can quickly go over those uh, basic guidelines. Uh, so first, the patient um, uh, should not have smoked a cigarette if they're smokers within 30 minutes of the measurement. They should empty their bladder. As you know, in practice, many patients who come to see us are wondering if they're going to have to give a urine specimen so they don't go to the bathroom until after the visit, and so they're sitting in your office and they need to go to the bathroom, and that will raise the blood pressure. So they should uh, void before the visit uh, so their they, the bladder is empty. Uh, the patient should be put into a sitting position with their feet supported on the floor, their back supported, and their arms supported at heart level. They should rest quietly. That means without conversation or other um, interactions for five minutes. Then the blood pressure should be measured, and we'll talk about the details of that. A and then after one or two minutes, the blood pressure measurement should be repeated, so at least two readings of blood pressure averaged. One needs to select a proper-sized cuff for the upper arm, and we recommend upper arm measurements. These wrist units that are available are not reliable, uh, and we don't recommend their use. 
after you've selected the proper sized cuff, um, if you are measuring blood pressure manually, uh, then you need to inflate the cuff, and that needs to be uh, at a slow pace while simultaneously palpating the radial artery. Inflate the cuff to about 10 to 20 millimeters of mercury above the pulse obliteration pressure, uh, and that ensures you're above this area we call the auscultatory gap, where the carotid cough sounds can temporarily disappear. Failure to do that will underestimate the systolic blood pressure. Then you should carefully deflate the cuff at a rate of two millimeters of mercury per second. A rapid deflation of the cuff can lead again to an underestimation of the systolic and an overestimation of the diastolic blood pressure. Then you have to carefully read the dial and record the number when you hear the first carotid cough sound and when you hear the last carotid cough sound. Um, so you can see from that process why uh, many practitioners don't do it very well. We're in a busy practice. We don't uh, allow the patient to sit quietly for five minutes. We may use a cuff that's wrong for the arm in terms of size. We tend to rapidly inflate the cuff. We maybe overinflate it and do it rapidly, which causes pain, which can temporarily increase the blood pressure. We may under or overinflate it. And we may rapidly deflate the cuff, and we tend to round the numbers off. Zero and five are way overrepresented in manual blood pressure readings. Um, now we can overcome some of these problems with these new automated oscillometric devices, which are now being encouraged to be used in clinical practices. The manual method of measurement is actually being discouraged to some extent. These automated devices can overcome a lot of these errors. Uh, they will inflate the cuff properly at the proper rate and the proper level. They will deflate it at the proper rate, proper level, and the, the reading is recorded on a digital readout. Uh, there's no rounding of the values, et cetera. These uh, devices can be programmed to make multiple measures of the blood pressure with timely rests in between and average the readings for you. Um, so this overcomes a lot of the error. Still, though, in the office, the uh, notion of having a patient sitting quietly for five minutes in the proper position um, uh, is frequently violated, as it was in your case. Yeah. Mayo Clinic offers national and international courses. Network with your colleagues at an upcoming Mayo Clinic CME conference. Visit ce.mayo.edu and register today. Well, let's turn to the uh, treatment guidelines for hypertension. Mm. Uh, late in 2017, uh, we received some new treatment guidelines from the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, what was new in those guidelines uh, compared to our uh, previous guidelines? Yeah, I, I want to emphasize, uh, firstly, that um, this is a very comprehensive guideline. It's a very good reference source for hypertension in general. Um, having said that, uh, there are four kind of major uh, new um, areas uh, with these guidelines that differ from earlier guidelines. The first is, I think, this emphasis on proper blood pressure measurement in the office and the emphasis of the use of out-of-office measures, both to confirm the diagnosis and to adjust therapy to reach the goal. The second new difference is that we have a new classification of blood pressure for adults. Um, in the previous classification, normal blood pressure was less than 120 over 80, and that's still the case in this new classification. In the previous classification, patients with systolic blood pressures between 120 and 139 or diastolics between 80 uh, and 89 
uh, were designated as having pre-hypertension. Uh, there was an acknowledgement that those blood pressures were not normal um, and uh, they should be uh, considered for intervention, but not high enough to put a patient individually at risk to warrant treatment, especially with drugs. Uh, and an emphasis was placed on those for lifestyle modifications associated with lower blood pressure. Hypertension was defined as a systolic of 140 or greater or a diastolic of 90 or greater. Now, in the new guidelines, they've abandoned the term prehypertension. So normal blood pressure is less than 120 systolic and less than 80 diastolic. For patients whose systolic blood pressure is between 120 and 129 and diastolic is less than 80, they've given these people the designation of having elevated blood pressure, okay? For patients who have a systolic between 130 and 139, a diastolic between 80 and 89, uh, this used to be, again, within the prehypertensive range in the old guidelines. That is now uh, stage one hypertension. So hypertension now is defined as a systolic of 130 or greater, or a diastolic of 80 or greater. And that's a big change. Um, it's going to increase the prevalence of hypertension from 32% of the population to about 46%. Almost half of the adult population will now carry a diagnosis of hypertension. And what was stage one hypertension, which is a, a systolic of 140, diastolic of 90 or greater up to 160, systolic up to 100 diastolic, that's now stage two hypertension in these new guidelines. So that's a big, big change. The third uh, change in these guidelines is the criteria that we are asked to use to decide when we should use drug therapy to treat hypertension. And that's based both on the level of blood pressure as well as on a global estimate of cardiovascular risk. So it's a risk-based decision-making process. And they've asked us to use the ACC-AHA risk calculator to determine an individual's 10-year risk for cardiovascular disease event. If it's 10% or greater, then the threshold for drug therapy is a systolic of 130 or greater or a diastolic of 80 or greater. In patients with known cardiovascular disease, uh, that same threshold holds true. For older patients, those are 65 years of age or older, just by age, who have systolic hypertension, the threshold for drug therapy, again, is a systolic of 130 or greater. And for patients who are, are known to be at high risk, that is, uh, patients with chronic kidney disease, diabetics, again, the threshold for drug therapy is 130 systolic, 80 uh, diastolic or higher. And then the final uh, uh, difference between previous guidelines is the target of therapy, which is now less than 130 over less than 80, literally for everyone, regardless of your age, well, regardless of your cardiovascular risk or your comorbidity. This is kind of a universal one-size-fits-all goal now. We know that elderly patients are more prone to orthostatism and I guess I'm concerned that if we're being overly or increasingly aggressive in managing their blood pressure, are, are we going to have an increased frequency of orthostatic falls and uh, resulting fractures? Yeah, so that is, a, that is a concern. These guidelines have received some criticism, and there's certainly some controversy surrounding them. And this very aggressive um, 
threshold and goal blood pressure for older individuals has received a lot of um, back and forth uh, in the literature, um, in editorials, and the like. Um, the decisions uh, that we've, or the changes that I've just discussed in these new guidelines um, are the result in at least, I think, great part to the SPRINT trial, which is a, was a very large treatment trial that was federally funded that enrolled patients age 50 or older who are at high cardiovascular risk and randomized them to either a systolic goal of less than 140 or a systolic goal of less than 120. And uh, in this cohort, they deliberately enrolled a group of patients who were 75 years of age or older. Uh, this study was stopped early uh, because of benefit uh, in those patients who were um, randomized to the more aggressive goal of less than 120. And the subgroup of patients who are 75 years of age or older seemed to benefit with a reduction in cardiovascular events and in mortality by being treated to this lower goal. Now, there's a lot of issues related to this trial that people have brought up um, as reasons not to generalize the results of SPRINT to the, to the U.S. elderly population as a whole. And uh, that those are complex, and there's a lot of them. Um, but having said that, that is one of the reasons why the ACCHA has adopted this more aggressive posture of treating hypertension in older patients. Uh, but I must say that uh, the American uh, Academy of Family Practice and the American College of Physicians produced a, a guideline for the treatment of hypertension in older individuals that was published uh, late early last year. Uh, and in that uh, guideline, they did consider the SPRINT results in conjunction with other results. And they came to a very different conclusion about thresholds and goals for older people. In their guideline, they've recommended that for people 65 or older, uh, that the threshold for treatment is a systolic of 150 or greater, and the goal should be to lower it to less than 150. And in elderly patients who are considered at high risk for cardiovascular events or have had a previous stroke or TIA, uh, then the goal of blood pressure could be uh, working toward a systolic of less than 140. So that's very different than what the ACCHA has recommended. And I must say the American Academy of Family Practice has not endorsed the uh, ACCAHA guidelines. So this is an area of controversy. I think uh, on the ground, physicians who take care of a lot of elderly patients um, recognize uh, the potential hazards of over-aggressive treatment. We recognize that in these clinical trials, there's a selection process for patients. They oftentimes don't truly reflect the usual type of patient we see in practice. These patients are very carefully followed. In the SPRINT trial, they were seen monthly. They had orthostatic checks at every visit. They excluded patients from participation if they had orthostatic hypotension or significant drops when they were screened for participation in the trial. So this was a very selected group. And uh, that's true for many clinical trials, that there's a difference in the people we see every day in practice and those that participated in the trials. So we just have to remember that these are guidelines and we need to individualize our patients and our recommendations regarding treatment. We've been discussing hypertension and the new hypertension treatment guidelines with Dr. Gary Schwartz from the Division of Nephrology and Hypertension 
Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Schwartz is a frequent speaker at our many continuing medical education courses, including practice of internal medicine, clinical reviews, and selected topics in internal medicine. Thank you for your time, Gary. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you've enjoyed this Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, we invite you to subscribe. Mayo Clinic delivers more CME offerings nationwide. Find your next conference at ce.mayo.edu. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Stay healthy and see you next week. Thank you.